everyone and welcome to DevOps Decrypted. Um, this is our second episode and today we're going to be discussing what a DevOps pipeline is and how to build one. Um, I'm your host, Romy Greenfield, and today I've got Matt, Lisa and Jobin with me again. So hi, say hi everyone. Hi everyone. <laughs> hi everyone. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I've got them well trained. So I'm going to start off the conversation with what exactly is a pipeline? Well, what's a pipeline? Well, I can start on yes. that. Um, so, um, well, traditionally, it's something that carries um, oil from one side of the country to another. Oh, no, sorry, that's the wrong podcast. Um, so <laughs> there's a whole, back in the olden days when we used to um, hack on our massive computers with our um, horrible green screens, um, we used to type lots of commands in to, to make the computers do things. Um, and eventually that became code. And then we typed lots of other commands um, to make sure it worked, to deploy it, um, and um, to test it, all those sort of things. But a pipeline is basically the modern distillation of that. So it's a load of jobs that take a, some source code um, from a source code repository, maybe go and build it, uh, maybe run some tests on it, maybe deploy it if we're doing some GitOps or continuous delivery. That at a high level is what I think a pipeline is. Discuss. <laughs> so basically, Matt, what you're saying is it's nothing but uh, instead of oil, you're taking software from source code to your production environment. Or chocolates, you know, at some last time. Chocolates. I've forgotten about the chocolates analogy. Yeah, <laughs> we started <laughs> yes. making the ingredients and then putting them in the shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Pretty much that. Yeah, with everything that's in, that, that's that's involved in between, um, and that pipeline is, I guess, the pipeline analogy kind of um, slightly lets itself down um, in that, or maybe I'm just using the wrong one that you put some stuff in the top, it goes through a pipe, something comes out of the bottom and it's finished um, and doesn't need any further messing around with. So that's probably what a pipeline is. At a very high level, any other uh, any other dissenters on it? No, I, I think I completely agree. Uh, basically, I think I heard this definition of, you know, a set of automated processes and tools, which is nothing but uh, what you said, right? I mean, it's something, a pipeline that you have laid down with stakes the source code to uh, production. So yeah, a, a set of processes and tools, I guess. Yeah. In my I view. guess the way that I would describe it is, I, I just remember the first time I ever saw one and not knowing what it was when I first became an engineer. And it's just all of the building blocks, all of the green blobs that I need to turn green, not red, in order to get my code <laughs> from my laptop into production. Building blocks, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that you could take things out, put things in, I had the control to disable a test if I really wanted to because it kept failing. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Did you guys have the hats? <laughs> what hats? Uh, so if you broke the bold, you had to wear a hat for the day, the dunce hat. <laughs> no, we weren't that advanced. But I have heard about people having um, a UFO in the office a physical UFO that would light up and start making oh noises if someone broke the pipeline. <laughs> and then sirens going yeah. off and, you know, everybody panics. Yep. So the first time I saw some lights reflecting the build process was um, when um, I started work at a company uh, just after Christmas um, and I went into their office and I thought um, on my first day, it was January the 4th, something like that. 
And I thought, oh, that's really nice. They've still got the Christmas lights on. There's like red lights all around the ceiling, all of them lovely and red. And over in a the corner, there were a few <laughs> little green ones. And it was only a few weeks later that um, I, 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 I saw that they haven't taken their Christmas lights down. Like the um, um, Santa is not going to be pleased with them next year because their lights were up after um, the 12th night. Um, <laughs> but yeah, actually, yes, it's for a build. Um and yeah, the, the colours. Um, I think a lot of people's first introduction to these things are yeah, the, the red and the green and the, the terrible um, aesthetics um, therein. Um, and yeah, maybe it's less of a pipeline and more of like um, you're going down um, going down a street through lots and lots of traffic lights. It's um, yeah, it's interesting, right? Because when you typically start off, you always start with the red lights, right? Mm-hmm. Be test driven development. We always talk about test driven development. You have your test written. But then you have you don't have the code yet, and so you'll be seeing red lights all over. Then you start seeing each one of them slowly turning into green. It's an interesting process, right? I mean, you panic at first, but once you are into TDD, you know that you're going to see red lights first, and then slowly it becomes green one by one. And when everything becomes green, it's Christmas. Yeah, Christmas. <laughs> sounds like you're good at this because I think you're describing kind of like test-driven development and yeah. test-driven infrastructure, mm-hmm. which is. Um, uh, yeah, this this kind of hallowed state that's um, um, I, I find it very difficult to get to. It's mostly just like, oh, this doesn't work. Oh, it still doesn't work. Oh, it still doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, everything green is still in my dreams. I mean, we are still getting there, but <laughs> that's nirvana. It's the ideal. That's what we're aiming for. It's the ideal, right? So where do people start when they want to build a pipeline? What are the typical stages that you'd want to put in there? That's an interesting one because you know uh, whether you start simple or, or or you go to the typical idea of a pipeline which goes through all these different stages. Right? Um, uh, I think when you're talking about DevOps pipelines, you're probably talking about you know developing you know developing a code, putting it in the source control repositories, then you know start building it, um, doing some tests on it, which Matt mentioned. You know uh, that could be your uh, integration testing, unit testing. Um, uh, probably even some security analysis, uh, static and dynamic. Uh, there are a lot of different things that you can do. Uh, dynamic obviously comes at a later stage, but um, thinking about testing, um, different kinds of testing, and then you you know package uh, your code, you deploy it somewhere. So there are different stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where do you typically want to start? That's an interesting one because we would always say if you're if you're a beginner, probably start simple, right? I mean, probably go for CA first maybe aim for CD at a later time. Uh, it, it, it all depends on how proficient you are and I guess, you know, where you are in the journey. Yeah, I suppose the pipeline can be any length that you want it to be. You can just start with just having um, an audit check, some linting, uh, exactly. and then build up from there. You get that one stage done and then you can move on to the next. You know, Jobin mentioned start with CI and, and do CD later on. Um, do we want to talk a little bit about you know, what are the differences between CI and CD? I think people kind of get those mixed up. Yeah, I think it'd be really good to cover those at this point. Mm. Then we can mm-hmm. expand the conversation. Uh, yeah, CI means continuous integration, right? So basically, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, rewind a few years back, you know, you have developers working uh, on subversion, you know, your central repository. Uh, people probably uh, start working on some code. They probably check in uh, once in a month. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it, it wasn't actually um, 
late in the process that they integrate the code together. And then you had these problems with merging the code. You know, you run into a lot of issues once you deploy it into your integration environment. Um, so I think the solution that people realized was, you know, uh, integrate faster, continuously. So that way, you know, if multiple developers are working on the source code, you make sure that you're working on a feature, you integrate it with the main line, start testing as early as you can. So that is where the concept of continuous integration came by. Um, so basically pulling together code, testing it together. That's what continuous integration is. Again, a bit more context around that. Um, it's um, when, you know, we, we start, when we first start doing pipelines and we start using CI tools um, like Jenkins, there we go. We've got quite a few minutes in before I mentioned the J word. Um, <laughs> never um, actually used Jenkins as well. So <laughs> never, never once. Jenkins is so uh, old. I thought that's... We need to talk. But yeah, oh, we talk. yeah. Oh, that's just poking a hornet's nest, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, so yes, uh, CI, continuous integration. Um, yeah, I, I like to make sure we've got the, the, the basics covered first, which is like you've, you've got to build. Does it actually, or you've got some source code, does it build into the thing that you expected it to? Before we've even got tests or anything like that, um, get to that stage, and then you start bringing in things like, um, well, we've got other contributors. It's not just me doing this. Other people are doing it. Uh, are writing code as well. And um, the the more time or, or the more effort you can spend on making your build nice and seamless, making sure that all works, um, the easier it is for other people to run the build. Uh, once you've got a build, you've got your software that's that's compiling and it's 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 being tested, perhaps it's being deployed, perhaps um, then that's great. You don't want somebody else to come along and break it. Mm. Um, so what they do is, um, or you don't want to break it yourself in the future. Um, you, you make a feature branch in your in your uh, source code system. So, uh, or maybe not a feature branch, but a, a branch that's not the main branch. And then mm -hmm. the CI system or the build system goes and builds that over there. You know, the main build's still all right, but your 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 feature branch is, is, is over there. It's out of the way. So you can make some little changes, commit them. And then the CI server builds your branch, makes some more change changes. Um, CI server builds, builds that for you. Oh, you've made a mistake. Right, cool. We can fix that on the branch. Um, that's the fundamentalist CI, the continuous thing. Do it over and over and over again over there on the feature branch so that it's out of the way of your main branch in case you need to deploy that. Um, so, yeah, just adding some color around um, around what Jamin's saying. I think it's interesting you mentioned about the feature branches because there are different branching workflows. One thing folks probably won't realize is how important the branching strategy is, right? Uh, with the introduction of Git, obviously there are different branching strategies that you can employ. Uh, like when we were with CBS or Subversion in the past, it was all, you know, check out your file, you do something on it, check it back, and boom, it goes into the uh, test environment. Uh, but with the introduction of Git, you know, you have Git flow is there. Uh, then you have one for GitHub, GitHub flow, you have the feature branching workflow. Uh, then there are other custom workflows that we as consultants go and implement uh, uh, with our customers basically looking at their requirements of, okay, how frequently you need to merge your code, uh, which environments you're going to deploy, uh, how will you incorporate the hotfix process, bug fix process, how will you do a rollback? A lot of these elements has to come together and it all starts with the branching workflows. So when you're thinking of the pipelines, you typically forget that part, but that's where it all starts, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 
massive area, the whole feature branch mm-hmm. thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, well, sorry, the whole branching strategy yeah. uh, thing. Um, insert, um, where I said feature branch a few minutes ago, I mean like the branching strategy, because even just saying the word feature branch can uh, invoke some fairly emotional responses from some people. <laughs> uh, but yeah, getting um, started, branches, uh, CI, yeah, off you go. Lisa. So with, without getting too deep into, I mean, I know we, we don't want to, you know, mention tools. What does one look for in a good CI, CD tool? I mean, what are some of the, you know, the non-negotiables? I mean, there are all these different tools. Obviously, the J1, the Jenkins one. The J1. <laughs> if you're talking about planning, then there is Jira too. So that's two of the J, J mm. tools. Uh, but but it's important to see where you're going at the end of the day, right? I mean, you, you just shouldn't be thinking, oh, you need to start simple. That's true. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're not focusing on today. You're also focusing on tomorrow. Yeah. And how much of the functionality that you need going forward, right? That's very, very important. I believe in terms of um, the different stages that we mentioned about earlier, does your tool support all of that? That's probably one aspect. The second aspect would be, are you going to be on-prem? Not in terms of the software that you're delivering. For some customers, for example, there's a requirement that your CICD tool should be on-prem because they cannot rely on taking a code into, say, cloud, for example. So you probably won't be able to use something like uh, AWS Code Deploy, uh, right? So that could be another consideration. So there could be different considerations based on which you will say one tool over the other. You will take one tool over the other, I believe. I used to have a bit of a, a, a kind of Luddite answer to that, which is that um, basically all these CI tools, what they do is they're just running scripts. Um, you know, they're running a build script or they're running a test script. Um, but um, I, I'm kind of modernizing my my view on that now, which is that um, in ways that means that like, you, yeah, it is just running scripts, but actually in writing those scripts and setting up those scripts, um, there's a whole load of functionality. I mean, the first time I wrote a CI pipeline, um, I had a script that did git checkout, blah, 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 to get the files. Um, and it was only a little while later that I realized that, well, no, actually there's plugins that can do that sort of thing for you. So you don't have to worry about um, getting it into the right directory or making sure you get the right branch. Um, the software will do that for you. So you link your CI system to your source code um, repository in a more intelligent way than putting it in a bash script. Um, and uh, I think that kind of reflects um, what you'd be looking for. And also why the J word is so popular, why Jenkins is so popular, because there's a plugin for everything um, that you could it's possibly want to do um, for Jenkins involving multiple um, different ways of storing your source code, multiple ways of building things, um, whether you have Docker integration or not, uh, um, multiple ways of deploying software out with, with, with Jenkins. Um, some of the other tools out there maybe don't have such a wide um, range of, of tools. Um, but again, that's not necessarily the right answer either. Um, you don't necessarily take your car to the mechanic who's got the most tools. Um, mm. You take your car to the mechanic who's got the tools that right you know the ones that you need um so yeah the big things for me are going to be um the extent to which it hooks into your source code um, and does the right thing there um whether you can use it to also deploy out to if you're deploying your software out to containers on aws perhaps or onto um, a server in your data center 
um, et cetera, those sort of things. And also other kind of enterprisey things like um, uh, does this tool, can, can we authenticate against this tool? Can we use our single sign-on for our, our enterprise login through Okta or whatever um, to make sure that, um, uh, that Fred can't trigger the build because um, she's not in the right group, but Alice can, and Alice can deploy to production. Those sort of granular access control type things, those are things that tend to be yeah. important. Um, and the last one I'd mention off the top of my head is, um, can you get a good view um, of what's working, what's not, um, that can be consolidated with lots of other tools? Um, so integrations mm -hmm. with other tools. Um, the integrations with other tools, yeah, that's very important, right? And especially considering that you're looking at the, uh, all the different stages, including planning, whether your tool integrates with Jira, for example, that's a big consideration. Um, it was also interesting you mentioned about, you know, seeing it just as a scripting tool. Uh, a lot of the people did that with Jenkins, for example, but one of the reasons a customer actually chose Jenkins over other tools was, you know, they wanted to host the tool in AWS, but at the same time, they wanted some of the agents to run on on-prem because they had specific uh, requirements where that agent needs to uh, run some specific software on the on-prem uh, service. Uh, so there were that requirement, and just because of that, they went for that kind of an architecture where the agents are running on-prem where the control plane was running um, on AWS. Uh, but yeah, different, different requirements, I guess. That's a key concept, actually, that we should probably introduce here, um, Remy, which is um, that there's when you talk about CI servers, um, there's, there's generally two parts to that. There's there's the server bit, which is like knows what your jobs are, what needs to be built, etc. Um, but then you have agents. So the way you scale out CI is by having lots of agents, and the agents go off and do the builds. Um, so if you've got a hundred builds, then maybe you can spin up a hundred EC2 boxes to do to do those builds on. So those are the agents. Um, and so, yeah, having something like Jenkins um, and, you know, most of the other tools let you do this to varying degrees as mm -hmm. well, um, more or less granularity of, of, of what sort of agents you use, be they instances or containerization. Um, I'm always flirting with containerization. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah the, the ability of the different tools to do those sort of things is going to be, is probably going to be important to you. Yeah, speaking of agents, I still remember when at last in Bamboo came up with elastic agents and how you can, you know, spin up agents um, as you need dynamically on AWS. Um, that, that was an interesting feature which, you know, a lot of our customers loved. So um, circling back to what you were saying earlier, Jovan, about, you know, start simple with your CI, at what point do you, would you move to CD? And and what can we tell our listeners Um you know, to help them with that journey? I think it's all about, you know, monitoring the impact that it has on the team. Once you see that CI is working, it's giving you the desired uh, outcome. Uh, basically, you know, you're able to deploy it fast into one of the environments. Then you look at continuous deployment. Um, well, CD actually, there are two different terms. One is continuous delivery, there is continuous deployment. So continuous delivery means, you know, making sure you have an artifact that is ready to be deployed into production. Whereas continuous deployment means you are continuously deploying it into the production environment. Uh, that doesn't happen often. I mean, you look at the big companies like Amazon, Netflix, sure it happens multiple times a day. I have heard probably over hundred or a thousand times a day that deployment happens into production. 
But most customers are not ready for that, right? They are probably looking at continuous delivery. So once you have your continuous integration working, then uh, obviously you need to figure out your continuous testing, which means you know you are automating as much tests as you can. And once that also is ready, then you can start doing continuous delivery. Um, so you have your code, you have to then automate the deployment into your environments, whether it is cloud or on-prem, it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, slow but incremental steps, I guess. Yeah, you can always deploy into a dev environment or an environment that's not actually relied upon can yeah. automatically mm-hmm. and see what happens and what breaks there and test it there before you have to commit to, you know, continuously delivering to production. <laughs> uh, absolutely. It's good that you brought that up because you have to then figure out, okay, what are the different kind of environments that you need? Mm. You definitely need a dev mm-hmm. environment. Are you doing the integration testing in that same environment or are you going to have a separate test mm-hmm. environment? then you might have user acceptance testing happening in UAT. You might have a staging environment, and then it gets pushed to production environment, right? And there are a lot of other detailed concepts that you can talk about, like um, blue-green deployments. Do you have a blue environment and a green environment where you push it and then you switch to production? So there are a lot of different concepts that we can talk about. I don't want to go that detail, uh, but yeah, figuring out that environment and the release strategy that's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you can also, you can have your pipeline go all the way up to production and then have that manual if you're too scared to actually have that deploy automatically for you. There's a lot of companies that do have that manual switch, even though they probably could automate it. They still want that safety net. That's it in a nutshell. Absolutely. Yeah. Wait for yeah, that's what people do. That that is um and it is that's one of the core the key differences between continuous delivery, mm. which is that, and mm-hmm. continuous deployment, which is just automatically deploying to production. Um and again, it's it's a confidence thing. Um picking up on what you said a minute ago, Romy, about um, you know, you want to be able to deploy your stuff to somewhere that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um reality is it, it it does all matter. Um and um it matters to us that um, software developers have an environment that, that that can matter to them, but that doesn't matter to anything else. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so when you start getting into CD, um, it becomes, again, another fairly nebulous thing around environments, um, disposable or otherwise, um, because you are absolutely entitled to have an environment where you can go off and break things in. Um, not because you're intending to break things, but that's generally how innovation happens. That's how you come up with good stuff. It's mm-hmm. by doing it wrong and, and then figuring out the way of doing it right. Um, or, yeah, at least I get it wrong more often than, than, than I get it right. And I think most people are like that in the software delivery world. Um, so, so, so yeah, um, environments, um, that, that's how you start to, to tie in the concepts behind CI with the ones of CD. Um, the two things are often bracketed together um, and it's important to spread them apart a little bit. CI/CD. We talk about CI/CD. And CI is very much about testing your stuff. Um, CD is about delivering it. Um, but yeah, two sides of one coin. Yeah, and Matt, you mentioned about the confidence. That doesn't come until you have proper automated testing happening, right? So with manual testing, there's always that checkpoint where you have to stop your pipeline, wait for the people to do the manual mm-hmm. testing, give the confirmation and give the sign-off. But 
once you have automated testing going on, you are you are more ready to do continuous deployment, right? Yeah, definitely. If you're confident in your tests and you believe that you've covered all of the things that are going to take down your app or really, really anger your customers, then why not mm-hmm. just have it deploy straight to production? Politics. <laughs> I mean, that is a big Basically. problem. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it, it, it's politics and it's, um, it's, it's confidence. Um, so, yeah, um, they... Sometimes I sound like a, and I'm sure we've all been in it. Well, a lot of, yeah, we've all been in this position where um, you kind of say, yeah, if you if you get all your tests right, then you don't need any manual tests. You don't need that manual oversight. And people look at you a little bit funny. Um, and it, it's a big step for a lot of people. Um, but the reality is, um, yeah, it's a big step. And also, it, it is inevitably political. Um, you have, um, I mean, it's not so prevalent these days, but you have uh, change boards uh, where senior or, or even um, I, I've seen us doing it ourselves within a database. It's not that we've got an official change board, but we've got some of the, those, those sort of patterns going on. It's like, oh, we need to deploy this. Oh, let's have someone senior just take a look at this just to make sure. And someone, um, and, and, and you're like, mm, yeah, I can see why you want to do that. But actually, this is technical stuff. Um, the technology is there. Um, years ago, we used to say things like, well, yeah, you can run all your unit tests and your integration tests, but I actually want someone to have a look at this website in a browser to make sure it looks the same as it did before the release. We can test for that automatically now. You can do headless browser tests. Mm. Um, but yeah, just being able to do it doesn't necessarily mean that the organization is is um, is confident in it. Yeah. Um, everyone's afraid of that, that that runaway deployment that deploys some bad code and suddenly it's on a hundred servers and it takes seventeen hours to back it out. And, <laughs> yeah, and you see it in the press. I mean, you, you see things like um, what's happened recently. Uh, fastly, internet oh, yeah. outage. Um, fastly Let's, in front of half of the internet, um, and uh, they broke half of the internet. Um, in a slightly um, aggressive wording by on my part, but not far off the truth um, through some bad configuration. It took them a while to figure it out and fix it. Mm-hmm. And everyone's scared of that. It gets you in the press, et cetera. Um, customers are, ah. Um, but if you're cautious enough, if you're sensible enough, and if you build up to it, you can actually get there um, and, and, you know, and, and remove those sort of objections and, uh, and do continuous delivery. State of DevOps report, I think I mentioned it last time, um, you you look at that and you look at um, there is a definite link between people deploying stuff quickly mm-hmm. and automatically with um, high performance, um, whatever high performance means. Um, but <laughs> it's fairly well defined in the, in the state of DevOps report. Um, but um, but yeah, it's 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 a mountain. It's political. Um, there's even issues like well, if you're going around the change board, then why do we need a change board? Why do these people have jobs? And um, that's not a, a diff- not a good place to be in. Um, you, you get all sorts of subversion going on. It's interesting you talk about that because at least in the last couple of months, we have come across two customers who actually wanted to automate the change address report activities. So basically they had Jira, in one case GitLab, in another case Jenkins, where you have a workflow for care process within Jira, but at the same time, it triggers builds or the builds in Jenkins or GitLab 
triggers the workflow changes within Jira once a build is successful or not. Um, so they do everything starting from, you know, um, w- once you're ready to cut the release branch, it starts, it creates a ticket in the uh, in the Jira uh, with a certain status. And then the release branch goes, it creates an ephemeral environment for that particular re- release. You know, it does automated testing within that uh, release environment. And then if the testing has all passed, at the end of the pipeline, it goes and moves the ticket in Jira to a different state. And finally, there is an approval. That can be manual, that can be automated, depending upon your confidence level. You finally approve it. Uh, let's say manual, somebody comes in, uh, let's put the blame on him if everything goes, him or her, if everything goes wrong. But that person approves it, it then triggers the deployment into production from the release branch. Uh, it's possible. Uh, we are already doing it for a couple of customers. Uh, but interesting that came up, cab integrating uh, cab process into the pipelines, that's a big, big thing right now. I think it's also important to note that, <clears throat> like Matt was saying, that there's politics and, and it's a it's a cultural shift. Um, too often when we, when we think of DevOps, we go, well, what tools are we going to use for our DevOps stuff? Instead of saying, well, how are we as an organization going to change our mindset to get to the point of being a DevOps organization? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is, you know, breaking down those fears and and the traditions that we've put in place for so long that we now have to move to a different way of working. Yeah. And if you give if you give someone lower down the food chain autonomy, they're going to have more pride in their work and they're going to be more yeah. panicked if they've just done something really quickly and not really checked it properly. So in giving them that responsibility rather than having this change board or these senior people that have to approve it, actually you're probably going to get a better quality of work coming from those people anyway. Yeah, you're right. It's feedback. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you, uh, Remy, what you touched on there is um, it's almost like um, the olden days where you know, you'd maybe you're at school and you'd write an essay and you'd give it to your teacher mm. and you'd wait for him or her to kind of look up and either would be with a horrible furrow on their brow <laughs> or their eyes would light up and they're delighted. <laughs> um, it's a bit like that. Um, when you go off to change board, you don't know what they're going to ask. Um, um, even if they're trying to be entirely consistent, um, it's probably going to be fairly random. And so um, the the likelihood of your change going through isn't something that you yourself have any control over. Well, well you, you have some control over it, but there's still such a large element of surprise there. Mm-hmm. Whereas with tests, um, you can see what the tests are going to do. Um, in your in your pipeline, you know, pipeline is there. You know exactly what it's going to do mm-hmm. um, to the extent that you can just write any old rubbish code um, that you know is going to fail, just to see how far it will get, and then you can see where it does fail, and then you know what to fix. If you've got a high degree of confidence in your tests, and you can do that so quickly if you're doing it in CI, and so you come back to one of Gene Kim's founding DevOps um, three ways principles, which is that instant feedback thing. Yeah. Um, and it's so powerful. It is, it is so uh, undeniably powerful um, and empowering um, for a dev to be able to do that because, yeah, you, you're just writing, you're iterating, you're building your confidence all of the time. Um, and that's how people do good work. Yeah, and we keep talking about, you know, being into a cultural change, uh, all the time focusing on the negatives of it, of it, but looking at the positives, you know, if something goes wrong in production and if you have implemented your pipeline with the right checks and balances, who to blame? I mean, you're not going to blame the developers. I mean, you should be blaming the pipeline rather, right? <laughs> so 
making sure that you have enough uh, checkpoints in your pipeline is very important. And it, it's a good cultural shift because you know then you don't have to worry about you know being accountable for something going wrong in production because you expect the pipeline to handle that, right? Do you have enough tests? Do you have enough checkpoints in there? That's that's important. Yeah, and it will highlight where you're lacking very quickly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mm. Uh, you could say it's comes. It's like an experience thing. It's like, oh yeah, of course, Romy b- broke the build. She's new. She doesn't know about this and that <laughs> and that and this. And this thing that we did in 2016 um, that doesn't make any sense, but we'll start with. Um, well, you start encoding all of that knowledge into your tests, yeah. so Romy can come along on day one. Um, sorry, I'm inadvertently labelling you as a junior engineer, which I'm not. Um, sorry, but you're, you're a good example, um, or good enough for this for this example. Um, you can go along and 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 you've encoded, you've used the system to encode all those years of knowledge. So you don't have to go to a senior dev who says, "Well, let me tell you a story about why that's like that." Um, you can mm. encode it. You can write code um, that mm. saves you from it, um, and, and that means that. Yeah, you're protected from that thing. Um, it also means it's it's up there. It's it's right out there um, um, and visible. One of the best, best things about automating things is that it means that um, previously invisible or guarded or cloudy, nebulous procedures, processes that you used are not anymore. They're there. They're in code. Um, and you can start engineering out those weird and wonderful foibles so that the next time a junior engineer does, does her first build, um, there's no even there's no likelihood of hitting those problems. I think I've ever thought that point now, but but there you go. <laughs> Just trying to look at what questions we haven't covered. Questions? Oh, oh yes, we were talking about pipelines. We were talking about pipelines. <laughs> what what is the feedback loop? We haven't asked that one. Or what is feed, feedback loop? <laughs> But we've discussed a bit of it already. I think we talked yeah, about it a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. fail fast. Yeah, I, but I think there's there's a problem that I have seen with feedback loops because people are always focusing on the feedback. They're not focusing on the loop part of it. So if you see the DevOps infinity loop, I mean, you would actually see it in our logo. Mm. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan would happily uh, agree with us. You know, the, the headphones yeah. actually make a um, nice feedback loop there. Uh, but speaking about the loop, you know, you actually see that failures are often projected, but that, that's the whole point, right? I mean, then you take that feedback, start working on the code again, fix the issues that you have, deploy it again, check the same problems and see if you're getting the same error. If not, you, you start working on new features and that, that loop continues. Uh, focusing on that loop is very important because obviously you're going to get failures, right? Uh, irrespective of the checks that you put in place, you might actually have some bugs appearing in production. But to make sure that you take them, go through the same process, that's very important. Not just focus on the feedback. There's some psychological safety elements here, which is a particular interest of mine, which is that um, um, it, it does change it does change you culturally somewhat when um, this sort of information, these loops are available and you can see them. Um, and almost in every situation you find that just making things visible um, 
people are sometimes afraid of doing this because they're like, oh, they're going to find out about that little hack I did like three years ago. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, you know, that's a consideration. Um, but we, I found like, yeah, um, the more that you're, you're, the more feedback you are eliciting, the more you're making yourself open to it. Um, the, um, you find that people start to swarm on your problems um, or help you to fix things. Um, uh, even like outside of outside of your direct team, maybe you're you're you're, um, you're sending pull requests on code, um, and they go to your direct team, your peers, um, but are also visible across the the wider organisation. Um, it, it promotes it's great opportunities to learn. It's great opportunities to bring the overall standard of things up, um, and yeah, all through this kind of visible feedback loop. Yeah, and I don't think any developer has ever not had the experience of looking back on code they wrote a few years ago going, who the? Oh, it was me. <laughs> it was me, yeah. <laughs> No matter how much experience you have, you'll always find something. In the past, when well, nobody would have known it, it was done by Romy, but now with source control management in place and, you know, keep tracking every commit that you're making, yeah, yeah we are definitely going to find out, Romy. Yeah. <laughs> Put my hands up. It was me. <laughs> yeah, everyone's going to find out it was you, Remy. Um, but but more, but there's there's more to it than that. In that, um, everyone also knows that they themselves could be found out for doing something, um, and because of that, um, all the negative care. language disappears because yeah. you know we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Mm. Like Romy was saying earlier, just just being a little bit more cautious about what you write and and you know how, how many tests you put in, etc. Uh, and it is not just that, right? Nobody is asking the question who wrote it; they're also asking the question who approved it. Yeah. Right? Oh, so yeah. there is this code review you have to get past, right? Mm. And who approved that code? That's an important question that people ask these days. Mm. Yeah. Um, who approved it? And also, again, I'm going to subvert that point as well to to uh, and repurpose it. Um, and take it down the avenue of, well, everybody could see these. So actually, everyone could see these changes. So everyone's approved it. Yeah. Nobody's actively disproved it. So therefore, it's everyone's fault. Um, it is. And once you realise that, then all, all the, the kind of negative language that we've we've accidentally started using around this, um, it's, it's archetypal in organisations as well. Um, people realise that you can see it in a different light, which is just... Um, Yes, it was someone's fault, but actually nobody spotted it. Um, we've got all these skills that can fix it, um, and we've got all these skills that can preemptively stop it happening again. And we start to get on a more positive, um, um, on a more positive tack. Yeah, which is good. I believe it was Amazon's representative who mentioned when once AWS went down, and the question was asked, "Is that person who was responsible for it? It was due to a manual error." Is that person who was responsible for it fired? And the answer was no, not really, because it wasn't that person's fault. It was a fault of the system that somebody could actually go in and make that manual error mm. and bring the whole of AWS down, right? Um, yeah. Mm. Who is to blame? Sorry. The pipeline. Yeah. Well, yeah, the organization. Um, yeah, the team. There's, um, there's, uh, without wishing to get academic on this, um, there's some work by a guy called Ron Westrom. Um, who has um, done a lot of research and you, you find it in the book called Accelerate by Nicole Forsgren if you want to go and look that one up um, 
where he's done a lot of work on analyzing organizations. And I can't remember the three classifications. Damn you, Matt, you are t- terribly prepared for this. Um, <laughs> but he classifies organizations. One of them is pathological. Um, and you get some of these pathological organizations where if something does go wrong, then the organization will seek someone to blame and it will seek someone to fire or discipline. I've worked in a few. Um, this isn't one of them. Um, and, uh, and that does happen. Um, and one of the challenges in, in doing, or one of the things you can um, achieve with DevOps, believe it or not, is to change an organization from being pathological to being a nice one. The other nice things in, in Westron's um, um, definitions. But yeah, that's what we're looking for. It's the science. Um, it's the, 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 the sensible um, human approach like from Amazon. Um, I, still, I still see organizations demonstrating pathology in public. Um, I can't think of a good example right now, um, but things on the register where, where people are saying, yeah, we had an outage, but we've um, done something bad to the person who did it. Wrong answer. It's the organization. Um, you can't go blaming individuals unless the, unless the organization has just one employee. Um, there's always more you can do. Cool. So thanks everyone for joining us to discuss um, what a DevOps pipeline is and how to build it um, on DevOps Decrypted. We hope you're enjoying the show. Let us know what you think on social media at Adaptivist. We look forward to keeping this conversation going there. Um, so for from me, Roby Greenfield, your host, thank you for listening. And Matt, Jobin, Lisa, do you want to say goodbye to everyone? Bye, everyone. So well trained. (laughs) (laughs) See you next time.